Well, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. And we come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Luke chapter 6, verse 43. Hear God's word. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell And the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your holy word. And in giving us your word, would we be brought low? Because it's only when we are brought low that we are able to look up to see Christ. Give us a vision of him today that would so change us tomorrow. Make us more like him, we pray. Amen. For a number of weeks now, we've been listening in on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, this week I decided to scroll through some old pictures of that very site. When I was there some years ago, I think it was about seven years ago with Pastor Eric and Pastor MJ. And I forgot just how scenic and picturesque it was upon that mount. It was by far, for me, my favorite place in all of Israel. We were there on a sunny afternoon with a light breeze and you could hear the wind blowing through the trees nearby, all while standing on this flat area of green pasture, of green grass, just as Luke described, a level place. And from that mount, you had this most impressive view of the Sea of Galilee, which was about 1,800 feet below, stretching out to the cliffs on the other side, bordering Israel and Jordan. And we can be quite sure that this was the location in which Jesus delivered his sermon as there's a 4th century Byzantine church that's built right in that location. But I must say that it was a most beautiful backdrop. Now for all the majesty of that mount for which I was so taken in, I reckon that 2,000 years prior that the disciples there on the mount had a very different experience. And I say that because their eyes and their ears and all of their senses were engaged not upon the environment in which they were in, but rather the person who was speaking to them. He was the Lord of all nature. And he brings his sermon to a close here in Luke chapter 6, verse 49. And while it's not mentioned here, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 tells us that when Jesus had finished his sermon, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was 
teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now there's something that we need to know about the way in which Matthew describes his reaction along with the others. The word there, astonished, in which Matthew uses, literally means to be struck. That what struck him and what struck the others was not so much the surrounding beauty, but Jesus' words. Matthew testifies that he and the other disciples were struck out of their senses. Meaning that they were utterly convinced. What Jesus had said had pierced through their souls. They were absolutely overwhelmed and overcome with what they had just heard. And the verb that Matthew uses there, he puts in the imperfect tense, which is to say that conviction didn't stop when the sermon had ended, but that it was ongoing. It it was a sermon that had continuing effect in their lives. And so you see, Jesus' words had forever changed them there on the mount. Well, the question then for us who profess to be His disciples is this. How will we respond to His Word? Will we be changed? Will it be lasting? Will we listen and thus obey? Notice that this is the decision Jesus wants to bring us to as He draws this sermon to a fitting close. You'll remember from last week now that Jesus addressed two areas of grave concern, judgmentalism and hypocrisy. Two evils in which we were warned. And this is what we saw in a spirit that is judgmental. A person who is hypercritical. In that the judgmental person is is seeking to find fault in other people. Searching for blemishes with this self-righteous heart a heart with no mercy, a heart with no grace. And here's the thing about a person who is judgmental. He or she is intrinsically not only hypercritical, but hypocritical. Not only hypercritical, which is to say overly critical of others, but is also hypocritical, undercritical of themselves. And so this is a person who lives by a double standard, inconsistent with what they appear to be on the outside as to who they truly are in the inside. And those two evils, beloved, they always go hand in hand. You'll never find one without the other. Listen to what Paul says here in Romans chapter 2. He says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judging or judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You see, judgmentalism is a hypocrite's favorite pastime, sensitive to the sins of others while being numb to their own. Now, as Jesus makes his final descent to conclude his sermon, what he is about to say here is not disconnected to what he has said before. In other words, Jesus is not finished addressing the judgmental hypocrite. Notice in Luke chapter 6, verse 43, it begins with the word for. There's a connection there. Well, what is Jesus' intent as He comes to the end of His sermon? And the answer is this. 
to expose, to expose our sins. To expose these sins. To expose the fruitless deeds of darkness in the light. And that by providing for those who had gathered there on that mount, the true litmus test of Christian discipleship. A test in which the hypocrite cannot escape nor avoid. That the real proof of our discipleship is not whether we hear what Jesus has to say, but whether we actually do the things He tells us to do. To say it another way, the truest profession of our faith is the practice of our faith. To be not hearers only of the Word, but doers as told to us by the half-brother of our Lord. Well, here in this passage, Jesus provides for us two examples which we'll use as our outline. In the first, Jesus gives us an illustration of trees and their fruit. And we'll see that in verses 43 through 45. And in the second, of buildings and their foundation. And you can see that in verses 46 through 49. These are definitely word pictures in which many of us are familiar, but I think if we take the time to carefully consider His words, we will be, I pray, where the disciples were, we will be struck in our senses. Well, we begin with the first. And Jesus says in verse 43, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree Bear good fruit. You don't have to be a botanist or an arborist to know that a tree can only produce the kind of fruit it was created to produce. Jesus provides for us an illustration, taking us back to the third day of creation. When God said, let the plants sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on earth. And it was so. And Jesus teaches us something for which we have observed from the beginning of time, and that a tree will produce a fruit according to its kind. This is always the case. Never has there ever been an instant where an apple tree produced a banana or a cherry tree grew an orange. Never happened. Never will. Now, when Jesus uses the term here, good and bad, he's not referring to whether the tree or fruit is healthy or rotten, but rather if it's edible or not. Which is to say good trees will always produce <coughs> edible fruit and bad trees will always produce fruit that is inedible. There is such a thing as fruit that we cannot eat. There is such a thing as inedible fruit because it will harm our bodies. It will give us stomach aches, nausea, Diarrhea, possibly death. Pastor Eric just talked about in the children's sermon, poisonous snakes. There's poisonous fruit. Reminds me of a story when I was in Israel with our pastors. And there was a man showing us around the city of Bethlehem. He was a friend of our taxi driver. And we were walking through the streets following this so-called tour guide we had just met. We had just met this man. Well, he stopped. And he grabbed some mysterious berries from a random bush. And he turned around and he gave it to all three of us. And he told us, eat, it's good. Right? And he went back leading the way. Well, here we were with these berries. And Pastor Eric, 
He was eager to eat these berries without hesitation. And maybe even without discernment. And he started eating these berries, gobbling them up. Well, I pretended to put them in my mouth, but I threw it over my shoulder (laughs) into the streets of Bethlehem. As for Pastor MJ, I didn't know what he did with those berries. I believe he followed my example and he did not eat those berries. But there is such a thing as inedible fruit. Again, I did not want to die where the Lord was born eating poisonous berries. Now, were they poisonous? As you can see, Pastor Eric is still alive. In reality, they were just blueberries. They are just blueberries. But you should never eat random fruit from a stranger. It's not safe. Jesus is saying here that there are good trees and bad trees, and good trees bear edible fruit, and bad trees bear inedible fruit. Easy to comprehend. We understand this by simple observation of the laws of nature. Trees bear fruit according to its kind. If an edible fruit tree, it will bear edible fruit. But Jesus says this in verse 44. For each tree is known by their fruit. Jesus is teaching us an important principle here. That there is a direct correlation between the fruit and its tree. An unmistakable relationship. And that the kind of fruit we see tells us something about the nature of the tree itself. The fruit reveals to us what kind of tree it is. Its type. Its classification. And you see, the fruit is never wrong. It will unquestionably tell us as to the nature of that tree down to its very root. To say it another way, the fruit is indisputable proof as to what that tree is underneath without exception. Now why is Jesus talking about fruit trees in His sermon? It's because He wants us to examine our personal lives. That we take an accurate spiritual measure of ourselves. You see, while Jesus prohibits the sin of judgmentalism, we already know He doesn't forbid us to make judgments. And His illustration here forces us to make judgments. Not upon, not upon other people, but mainly ourselves. Who am I truly underneath? Who am I at the very core of my being? And beloved, that's a critical judgment that we need to make. That we must make. For that will reveal to us whether we are truly His disciple or not. What Jesus wants to communicate to us is this. We are what we do. We are what we do. That the fruit of our lives will reveal more than anything else who we really are. Verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Well, just as bad fruit indicates a bad tree, we find that so sin indicates something of ourself. And it's this, that you and I and the rest of humanity are inherently sinful. That's who we are deep down inside to the very core of our being. Our sins reveal 
that we are sinners in nature. Ephesians 2.3 says, By nature we are children of orges, of God's holy wrath. In the same way in which an apple tree indicates an apple, or an apple indicates an apple tree, so does our sinful actions and our sinful thoughts and our sinful attitudes indicate a nature that is corrupt. You see, if we were to go fruit picking in our lives, what we would find is a lot of fruit that is inedible. And the point is, that inedible fruit, it comes from somewhere. It doesn't just appear on the branches by coincidence or circumstance. It comes from a root. It comes from the very center of our souls. What we need to know about the problem of sin is that sin is not just bound up in itself as some kind of wrong act or wrong deed floating around in the spiritual realm. No, it comes from only one source. Our hearts. And that is what is so crippling and pervasive about our sin. We just don't commit acts or do sinful things. No, it, it, it springs forth from the very fountain of our innermost being. The root lies within ourselves. We do because we are. Which is to say, sinning doesn't make us sinners, but rather we sin because we are sinners. Listen to James chapter 1, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What James is telling us here is that sin comes from nowhere else but ourselves. And sometimes we forget that. From our desires. Sin then is not so much a problem of deeds, but rather sin is a corruption of desire. It's the corruption of our hearts. And the proof and the evidence of that corruption is shown in our sinful deeds. And so the issue is not necessarily the fruit, but the real issue is the root. You know what's interesting in what Jesus says here in verse 45 is that the word he uses for treasure, out of the treasure of his heart, is the word in which we use for thesaurus. A thesaurus, as you know, is a repository of all kinds of similar words. Well, what we discover about our hearts then is that it is a repository of all kinds of manner of evil. And from this repository, all our actions and all our deeds and all our thoughts and all our attitudes flow. In other words, everything we do comes from this storehouse of evil. And this is why Jesus goes on to say, verse 45, for out of the abundance of the heart, for example, the mouth speaks. What we find is that sin is a heart issue. And so, for example, my speech, what I say to my wife, and what I say to my kids, and what I say about other people, and everything that comes out of my mouth is indicative of what's really going on inside my heart. And you see, it doesn't take long for us to realize 
we have bad hearts. This is the result if we are to examine every single heart. There is no one born bearing anything that is edible. Which is to say, good trees don't exist in and of themselves. Not in this fallen world. Romans 3 gives gives us more detail on our heart condition. Paul says there is no one righteous. No, not even one. Why? It's because every single person is under the domineering power of sin in their heart of hearts. Well, let me pose this question, this common response. What if I change my fruit? I understand what bad fruit looks like. Anyone can see it. So let's change it. Let's turn it into good. Beloved, this has been the futile attempt of sinners since the fall of man. Do everything in one's power to produce fruit contrary to nature. Maybe we can try to fix ourselves with behavior modification. Join a 10-step program. Get my life together. Clean up my act. Go to therapy. See a counselor. Get rid of some toxic things in my life. Change up some of my life habits. Become more positive. You can do all that. But I bet my life, it won't change a thing. Because it doesn't do anything to solve the root problem. It might go for a while, but a tree will eventually always go back to producing its kind. Maybe this one addiction will stop, but another will. Maybe this bad habit will go away, but another will form. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, so how do I change the root? How do I change How do I change my nature? You can't. You can't. No matter how hard you try, you cannot change your nature. You can never change who you are. You can try for the life of you, but you can never change your nature. Jeremiah 13.23 Listen to what the prophet has to say. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? or the leopard his spots, neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You can't. With all the money in the world, you can't. With all the resources in the world, you can't. With all the help in the world, you can't. No one can change the heart. Jesus said in John 8, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. You see, our sin reveals to us more that we are enslaved to a master. And here's the thing about slavery. No one is able to walk away free. Well, what can you do then? If I can't do anything to change my very nature, then the only conclusion I can come to is this, that I am lost, that I am doomed, and there's nothing I can do to save myself. Is this what Jesus is saying? Yes, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And by so, He's saying this. He's welcoming you. He's welcoming us to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when David had committed his atrocities, 
what was really going on in his heart was revealed. But what did he do? In utter shame and humility, remember what he cried out to God? He cried out to God, create in me a clean heart. That's what he cried out. He turned towards the only one who could change him from the inside out. It's not that we need our hearts mended or restored or fixed, but we need an altogether new heart, which only the Lord and He alone can give. He needs to, by His Spirit, regenerate me. In the words of Jesus, I must be born again by removing my heart of stone and giving me a heart of flesh. Only He can, by His Son, save me. Save me from my sins. Deliver me from the corruption which merits me eternal condemnation. I want you to notice that as Jesus closes His sermon, He really brings us back to the beginning of His sermon. You see, we have been exposed and we have been found out It has been made clear to us the very corruption of our hearts and that there is nothing good within ourselves. And as such, there is only one way in which we can respond to come to Him in abject poverty of spirit. You see, as He closes His sermon, He brings us right back to the beginning that we might come to Him broken and poor and needy. To be brought low in humility and in contrition. This is how Jesus began. He said, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is where he wants us. And if you're not a Christian here, this is where he wants you. Hopeless to save yourself. That you might throw yourself upon Christ to save you. To come to Him for mercy and to come to Him for grace. You see, the Gospel is that while all of humanity are bad trees bearing bad fruit, there is only really one tree who always bore good fruit. He's none other than Jesus Christ. If you've been listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the truly blessed One. You see, we've been saying this, all the Beatitudes find their fullest expression in Him. And you see, He's the one in which the very first lines of Psalm chapter 1 speak of. Listen to Psalm chapter 1. He is the blessed man. He is the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What else does someone tell us? He is like a tree. He is like a tree. What kind of tree? A tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. You see, Christ is the blessed one. Christ is that fruit-bearing tree. And so our only hope then 
is in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, Psalm chapter 1 doesn't end. What does it say about me? Psalm 1 says, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. This is the fate of every sinner apart from Jesus Christ. They will not stand in the day of judgment. Rather, they will receive the just retribution for their sins. But the gospel is that God took the blessed one, that God took the fruit-bearing tree and gave him to sinners such as ourselves, and that to stand in our place, suffering the holy wrath of God, bearing the shame upon the cross. Jesus died the death sinners deserved for not living the life they should have lived. But he who died was raised, raised from the grave to demonstrate that he had power over sin, that he had power over death, and thus offer to sinners that which they don't deserve and to give what he has deserved for them, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he now calls you who are without Christ to repent of your sins, to place your trust in him for the salvation of your soul. This is the gospel for which apart from Jesus' saving work, you will perish in your sins. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. And so if you're not a Christian, come to Him. Come to Him, and He will do all that He has promised for you. You see, only in Jesus will our hearts be changed from the inside out. You see, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old nature, it says. The old nature has passed away. And the new has come. And that's where we begin to produce good, edible fruit. Because he He has made us new in the very depths of our being. And you see, for us as Christians, we can never forget this. That Christ is our only hope. That it is only in Him that we are able to produce what God requires. Never in and of ourselves. Well, notice that this is the warning that Jesus now gives in His second illustration. Look with me in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You know what Jesus is asking us here? He wants to ask us this. Where is your hope? Here he gives the illustration of a foundation to express the thing in which all our hopes are based. What is the firmest base of our hopes in this life? Jesus is calling us, as we often sing, to place our hope on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. They would be Christ, the solid rock in which we stand because all other ground is sinking sand. 
That hymn is a commentary on Jesus' closing words. But as we look deeper into this picture of foundations here, I think Jesus is addressing those who think they can fabricate fruit. Because you see, Jesus, He knows His church. And He knows that there are church members who are really trees bearing bad fruit, yet attempting to do all that they can do to make it look like they're producing good fruit. They say the right things. And they do the right things. Notice they come up to Jesus and they call Him, Lord, Lord. That's not a term used for a passing acquaintance. But rather, this is a, this is a, a confession of intimacy, of relationship. These are people who claim to have a deep personal affection for Jesus. Lord, Lord. In other words, to everyone else, there's nothing within public view that they that they should ever doubt the genuineness of his or her faith. But in Matthew's account, Jesus pronounces the most horrific and damning words a person could hear. Lord, Lord, I don't know you. I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Why? Jesus says here in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see, there was no real fruit. Just pretend fruit in front of church people. Church, the, the warning is very scary. And the warning is very severe. Are you a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you truly been converted and transformed inside and out? Have you been made new? Where is your foundation? Where are all your hopes placed? Are you bearing fruit? Behind closed doors. Those who belong to His kingdom are those who hear His word and put them into practice. Why? Because they are now good trees. Bearing good fruit. In other words, they live their lives obeying Jesus Christ. It is not enough to just come to church and listen to a sermon. What God requires, even as we listen to His Sermon on the Mount, is a believing response. You just can't listen and walk away. You must respond in faith. There must be a believing response. One that desires to do His will. In the book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, on their journey to the celestial city, Christian and faithful are met by, by a man named Talkative who is always conversing about spiritual things but never living it out. Talking the talk without walking the walk. And Christian in warning faithful says this about him. He talketh of prayer 
repentance, of faith, and of the new birth. But he knows but only to talk of them. The soul of religion is the practice part. This talkative is not aware of. He thinks that hearing and saying will make a good Christian. And thus he deceiveth his own soul. You see, church, may none of us be deceived. Let us lay a foundation then that will not be swept up in that storm. Meaning, let us turn to Christ. And let us look to Him in trusting faith. Not simply hearing, but doing in glad obedience. And if in this hour, if in this hour, you find yourself despairing, because you have come to realize who you really are, and you realize it has finally hit you, I've been faking it this whole time. I say this, come to Christ. Come to Him poor in spirit, mourning over your sin. Come to Him and heed His promise that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says this, I will never cast out. Let's pray together. Holy and eternal Father, You have taken us through the refining fire of Your Word and that to expose and to burn away the chaff in our lives. We have come to see sin for what it really is and from where it truly comes from. From our own hearts. And so we confess to You our sins. We confess to You all our sinful deeds in both thought and deed and attitude for the things we do, for the things we say, for all that goes on in our hearts. For us who are saved, Lord, we know that You have given to us a new nature. Yet we struggle with the old sinful nature. And we confess the fruit of our old evil nature. And we repent of that which displeases You. The sin which comes from our hearts, manifesting itself in all sorts of evil ways. And so forgive us, Lord, and help us to look again to Christ our Savior, who in Him all our sins have been washed and taken away. We thank You that we are in Christ. That it is no longer we who live, but Christ in us. To Him we give our worship and praise, coming from the Father in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.